0: We're, we're, we're kind of in the home stretch as Paul is made his way to Jerusalem and now he's making his way uh, He's now in a city called Caesarea and he's gonna be making his way to Rome And so we're look, looking through we're in Acts chapter 24 And if you want to turn there you can turn there if you have a Bible a copy of the scriptures You can turn there now there are some Bibles in your pews and you're welcome to to grab one and follow along We're in Acts chapter 24 As we as you're turning there Man, uh, I don't really have an introduction, but I was thinking about this in the pew as I was coming up. Jesus said that in the world we'll have troubles. In the world we will have troubles. He said, take heart, I've overcome the world, but in the world we'll have troubles. And particularly, particularly last year as we were going through the book of Hebrews, um, we mentioned about how Hebrews is a, is a letter written to a church that's losing its place of privilege in society, that's that's kind of how we framed as we went into the book of Hebrews, is that the, the they had some, a certain protection under Judaism as they're connected to Judaism. Uh, the Christians had a certain protection as it, they became more and more Gentile. They are kind of coming out under that umbrella of the protection, so they were losing some of the rights, the privileges that they once enjoyed. And we had mentioned that as we went through that book, we mentioned that the church in the West, the church in our country, is in a bit of a transition now as we're losing some of that place of privilege. And in doing so, you know, sometimes it just might feel to you or at some at times, maybe not all the times, but sometimes it just feels that as Christians and as a Christian, we're just always just set on display or set on trial in front of the world who is watching us and at times condemning us and convicting us. And so sometimes it feels like you're at school and people are, you know, maybe you, you go and you have the the mindset of, oh man, people are watching me. They're watching if I slip. We, we talked a couple weeks ago that I know some of you guys who are in university who've, who've literally had roommates or, or people in the dormitory, in residence, saying, I'm watching you, Christian, and I'm watching for when you slip up. Right? Or maybe you have a job, at a job, where you, know, you feel that not only do you have the pressures and stress of your job, but you also then, also you want to represent Christ. And so you feel as though you're on trial in front of the watching world. Or as a parent, as a parent, you know, you, you, we have that, we know, we understand that our kids are watching us. I, I've sometimes called kids hypocrisy detectors, right? Because kids will point out when our, when our practice doesn't match our profession. They will. And, and so we as Christians we, in a sense, are put on display in front of the world. And sometimes it's tiring to always feel as though we're on trial. Well, in Acts chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is literally on trial. He's on trial before a governor by the name of Felix. And um, I think this is going to work. There it is. So, Paul is literally on trial as he's been now brought to Caesarea in Acts chapter 23. He's brought and he's he's literally to make a defense of himself before this governor called Felix. And there is a trial in Acts chapter 24 and it is the Christian who's on trial in Acts chapter 24. But by the end by the time as we go through this chapter what we're going to see here is there's not only one trial going on in this chapter. There is in fact two trials going on as we work through this chapter first paul is on trial in front of felix but in the second part of this chapter felix is on trial and not he's not on trial in front of paul he is on trial in front of a holy and righteous and perfect god and we're going to look at the responses of felix and the responses of paul their defense of themselves in these trials as we look through Acts chapter 24. And as we look carefully at these two trials, we're going to see the difference in how the world accuses, and how the world accuses the Christian according to their works, and how the Spirit convicts the world on the basis of its sinful heart. That's where we're going as we look through this chapter. So join me in Acts chapter 24 as we go. Acts chapter 24 we see that the world, (laughs) the system of the world, energized and empowered by the devil, accuses the brethren of wrongful deeds. And so the chapter begins with this devilish devilish accusation uh, of the Apostle Paul, and we, we get to know the accusers right away. In Acts chapter 24, verse 1, it says, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. These are the accusers who are, who are, who are, who are putting Paul on trial, prosecuting him. And, and let me introduce you a little bit to these accusers. Uh, we haven't really, we didn't really do this as much as we were looking. Paul's actually been on trial once before this man Ananias, where he was acting as the high priest in the Sanhedrin, which we talked about last week, Paul was dragged in front of in Acts chapter 23. Ananias is a son of, N- I can't name his name. <laughs> I'll just say this. Ananias was reigning as high priest, and he was a terrible man. He, he was known for his uh, use of violence. He was known for his secret counsels. And at one point, uh, how he uh, enacted his duties as high priest got to the point where actually Caesar himself called Ananias uh, to come to Rome to stand in front of him to give an account for his corruption and for his use of violence and for how he was administrating his duties as high priest. This is, re- this is a ridiculous thing that Ananias has called in front of the secular king, the Caesar of the Roman Empire, because of how he was administrating his duties as high priest. He was actually bound and sent to Rome. He was relieved of his duties as high priest and sent to Rome in front of Caesar. And while he was deposed of his duty as high priest and and was in front of Caesar, during that time where he's on trial giving his own defense, uh, a new high priest arose named Jonathan. And so Ananias is now in Rome. He's in front of Caesar. And and some of Ananias' friends make, uh, make a defense in front of Caesar for Ananias. And one of the people who actually brought Ananias back to Judea, to Judea, to Jerusalem, was Felix, who's now the governor that, that Paul's standing up in front of. And so Felix gets Ananias, he, he gets him off of his charges, and Ananias comes back to Jerusalem. But now we've got a problem because now Jonathan has, has Ananias' job. And so what happens next? Uh, the, 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 the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus tells us what happens next. And he writes that, this is what he says, the, the high priest Jonathan is murdered by assassins. And this is murders described by Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. He says this, Felix, the governor that Paul standing up in front of, bore an ill will to Jonathan the high priest because he frequently admonished him about how he governed Jewish affairs. And so Felix, accordingly, Felix contrived a method by which he might get rid of Jonathan whose admonitions had become troublesome to him. Felix persuaded one of Jonathan's most faithful friends of the name Doris to bring robbers upon him and to put him to death. Now this was done in Jerusalem. These robbers came to Jerusalem and assassinated. They they put daggers under their garments and they assassinated Jonathan, the high priest. And after Jonathan was out of the way, the, the office of the high priest was vacant. And so guess who gets to kind of step in there while there's no high priest to kind of like run the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council? Who do you think it would be? Well, who's the only one who's got the experience doing that? Ananias. And so Ananias actually begins to act as the high priest, even though he'd already been disposed, and he was placed there on the account of this assassination attempt by Felix. This is why in Acts chapter 23, Paul is brought in front of the Sanhedrin, and if you flip back to Acts chapter 23, uh, verse 1... Paul's making his defense in front of the Sanhedrin, and he says, in verse 1, he says, "And looking intently at the council, Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Right? He's a violent man. Paul's just saying, look, I've lived my life in good conscience. Ananias is like, get him. Get him. Boom. And Paul, then Paul said to him, verse 3, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, he must not speak evil against the ruler of your people. What's happening there is Paul's challenging Ananias' authority. And so Ananias has already had his authority challenged by Paul. Ananias' Felix and Ananias are already kind of complicit in an assassination attempt, and these are the people who are accusing now the Apostle Paul. Now, Ananias doesn't come by himself; he brings others. He brings some of the elders of the Sanhedrin, and they bring this spokesperson, Tertullus. Now, this Tertullus has an unfortunate name. If you're going to be a lawyer, his name—the name Tertullus—literally means liar or imposter, okay? I don't know why you give these names to your children, right? I, or I don't know, maybe this is a nickname that Tertullus had, had received on the basis of how he conducted his legal affairs. But, but anyway, I, just, I tell you all that just to set up this scene of the Apostle Paul having to make a defense of his ministry in front of this king who's already been complicit in assassination attempts, who's already been complicit with this high priest Ananias who himself has blood on his hands... So, the, so the, the, the Felix, the governor, is corrupt. The prosecutor is corrupt. And then they bring, as their trial attorney, this guy whose name literally means liar and imposter. What sort of trial is Paul going to receive here? And so in verse 2, we have the charge against him. So we have the charge against him. We have the accusers, verse 1, and the charge against Paul in verse 2. Verse 2 says, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying... Since since through you, Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so so we have this charge brought up to felix about the apostle paul now we have already read we've already known that this is slander this is this is nothing more than than slander he says a couple things we found this man to be a plague he says it is it is paul who stirs up riots throughout all the known world stirs up riots among the jews throughout the world now we have been reported as we've been going through the book of acts that often paul was on the receiving ends of the riots. Yes, he was involved in the riots, but but it was often because he's simply just preaching the gospel of Christ and in response, these uh, the Jewish people from the synagogues would often just even chase him out into the street. At one point, even leaving him stoned for dead outside of the city. They say of him that he is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Well, the Apostle Paul throughout his ministry in the book of Acts, he's, he's not the ringleader. He he submitted his ministry. He, 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 he works together with the elders of, uh, in Jerusalem and the apostles such as Peter and, and James. He's not the, it, would be, it would be news to the church that Paul is the ringleader. And here's the most slanderous accusation that he tried to profane the temple. These are all lies. We have the record in front of him. Paul was at the temple in order to help some of the Jewish brothers uh, make and fulfill. He sponsored them as they fulfilled their Nazarite vow. He didn't bring a Gentile into the temple. That was a false charge that was against him. But you'll notice that all these things, particularly the, the accusation of bringing a Gentile into the temple and defiling it, are all speaking against the Apostle Paul's conduct. They're saying he is a plague because he's the one who goes out and stirs up these riots. He is actually the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he is the one who had the the gall to come to the temple and seek to defile it. And they're making accusation of the Apostle Paul of his conduct. That he's a bad citizen. That he's an instigator of trouble and violence. And there's a reason I refer to this as a devilish accusation. Because that is what the accuser of the brethren, does. Satan's name literally means adversary or accuser. In Revelation 12.10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. And so here you have, in Acts chapter 24, corrupt men making slanderous accusation according to Paul's works, according to his deeds. And look at Paul's defense. Acts chapter 24, 10. When the governor nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And Paul responds to every charge against him. He first says, I did, I, I did not stir up the crowd when I went to worship. He says, in verse 11, You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple, or in the synagogues, or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. For, so first he says, look, bring evidence against me. If you're going to judge me according to my deeds, bring evidence against me. Second, he focuses, and this is, we're going to look at this a little bit later, but he focuses on his devoutness as a worshiper of the God of the Jews. He says in verse 14, he says, this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the province in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. So he he, he highlights his devoutness in worshiping the God, the same God uh, that, that those who accuse him worship. We're going to look at that a little bit later. But finally, his final part of his defense is that he was there to maintain the purity of the temple. Verse 17, he says, Now for several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. So Paul responds to every charge against them. He says, I wasn't, I wasn't there stirring up. I wasn't a rabble-rouser. I wasn't stirring up the conflict. I, myself, am a devout Jew. I believe everything in the law and in the prophets. I believe in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. I was at the temple. I had made purification not only for myself, but the others that I had brought to the temple with me. You can talk to no one there and say, I was disputing or, or, or riling up the crowd." And then he says this, this is the other part of his defense. He says, where are my accusers? He goes on to say, where are my accusers? Some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. So Paul's actually saying the people who are accusing me, the people who are slandering me of this conduct are not even here to make an accusation. Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing I cried out while standing among them. It's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial here. And if you remember in in chapter 23, that's what shut down the discussion. That's what shut down the trial before the Sanhedrin. Paul, what he's saying here is, I am innocent according to every charge you have brought against my conduct. If you want to get into a theological discussion, Let's get into the theological discussion about what I believe about the resurrection of the dead. If you're going to make that the point at which you're going to have this trial about me, let's talk about that. But if you're going to talk about my deeds, if you're going to talk about my conduct, then I I have witnesses. Nobody saw me stirring up the crowd. In fact, my accusers who are making that slanderous accusation, they're not even here. So Paul defends himself on the basis of his conduct. He defends himself on the basis of his deeds because that is what he is in trial for. And we get the outcome of this first trial in chapter 24. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put him off saying, when Lysias the Tribune, right, Claudius Lysias, who we looked at last week, comes down, I'll decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but to have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, what kind of, I just want to think through this first trial here for a second before we move on to the second. One thing I see in this trial is I see Paul, and he, and he did this in chapter 23. Paul, what he does in chapter 3 and what he does here in chapter 24, as he makes his defense of his works in front of these who would accuse him of his wrongful deeds, Paul emphasizes this I have a clear conscience before you. right, he says in chapter 24, verse 13, he says, they can't prove to you what they now bring against me. And in chapter 24, verse 16, when he's speaking about how devout he is as a Jewish person, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. When the world puts us on trial, the world will often set us on trial according to our deeds, And Paul highlights here and throughout his entire ministry, and not only in the book of Acts, but you see this in his epistles, that Paul did everything he could, that he might not have any occasion for his enemies to slander him. That doesn't mean he won't be slandered, but that he's not providing them any occasion for which to slander him. He has conducted his ministry, often even the way he conducted his ministry toward money, how he conducted his ministry and his in his ethics of how he conducted his ministry, of how he related both to the churches and to the synagogues and to the Gentiles outside of the church. Paul says this, I have done all that I can do to make sure that my hands are clean and that I've conducted myself before God and before man with a clear conscience. And if you can find anybody who can speak against my action, can speak against my conduct, let them come here and bring evidence against me. How do we respond as Christians in an age in which we are always on display, in an age in which people are always looking at us to see when we're going to trip up? Christians who are here today, let me, let me express to you from this text, make certain that you do not give your accusers the rope to hang yourself with. Make certain that you're conducting yourself with ethics in all of your affairs at work and at school and in your community. The, the New Testament speaks of a strategy that Jesus has given to us as Christians in how we relate to the Gentiles and the world amongst us. And it's a strategy of, as we've talked about, bef- we've talked about before here, a strategy of benevolent good works. What does that mean? That we seek to do good to those around us with a clear conscience and we do it primarily for two reasons. We do it first to, to act as a shield in cases like this, to act as a shield of persecution. This is from Second Peter. We looked at it a couple weeks ago, so I didn't put it back in here. But the Apostle Peter says, "Let keep your conducts before Gentiles pure, so in that day of slander, they have nothing to say against you. Right? If you're a Christian and you're stealing from your boss... That's not keeping a good conduct. That's not keeping a good conscience. And so, when your coworker, can, when your coworker comes against you with an accusation, you, there's nothing to vindicate you. And so, conduct yourselves blamelessly. Particularly, I mean, conduct yourselves blamelessly simply because we serve a holy God. That's what Paul says. He says, "I have done all things to keep my conscience clear before God." So we're not just pragmatic in how we are conducting ourselves ethically. But, especially because we know that there are those around us who are looking to see when we're going to trip up, make sure that you keep your conduct pure in front of those who would put you on trial. So our good works are a shield. Think of your good works as a shield so that in the day of slander you'll be vindicated according to your righteousness. That's Psalm number 26. Vindicate me, God, according to my righteousness. Right? According, I've, I've kept your law, I've kept a clear conscience. So good works are a shield. Think of good works as a shield. And then good works are a platform, aren't they? Good works are a platform that give us an opportunity to express the goodness of our Father in Heaven. Jesus said, let your light shine before all men so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in Heaven. So we as Christians are to pursue a strategy of the world around us, to pursue a strategy of good works. Of clean consciences, of good ethics, right, so that our accusers will be silent on the day of their accusation. The second thing about this first trial is this be clear in what you're defending. I, I struggled with this, this this week because Jesus had told Paul, you will be here in Jerusalem and you will witness and you will testify, you'll be brought up in front of kings and governors and you will testify about me. But then I read his defense in front of the Sanhedrin and I read his defense in front of, of this, in front of Felix. And look, at there's nothing in this defense that actually testifies of Christ. He, he, he admits, he says, I confess to you that according of the way, so he, he makes mention of the fact that he's a Christian, but, but he actually, in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of Felix, he emphasizes the fact that he's, he's a good, moral, ethical, zealous, devout Jew who happens to worship according to the way of Christ. And I'm like, what's Paul doing there? You know, we might criticize Paul for being, well, why didn't you be more clear in how you're testifying about Jesus? And it hit me, and this is why we need to get to the second trial, but it hit me here, but Paul is listened. He has listened to what they're accusing him of, and they're listening to him, and he realizes they're accusing him according to his conduct. And so he's defending himself, he gives defense of himself on the basis of his conduct. Right? So he, he, he's not going to give them even more rope to hang himself. Like I said before, he was like, if you want to make this trial about my belief in the resurrection of the dead, well then let's talk about that. But up until now, the only thing you've accused me of is do I, am I a rabble-rouser? Am I at the temple trying to stir up trouble? And am I trying to defile the temple? And I can bring out my evidence to say, look, you're not even here. My accusers are not even here to talk to me about that. And he's defending his conduct And he gets to defending his Christ later. And what I want to say, suggest from you in this is if you are put on trial in front of your employer or in front of your classmates or in front of your children or, yeah, in front of your children, wow. When you're put on trial on account of your conduct, don't go and immediately defend your Christ. Like if you're put on conduct as a Christian because somebody's saying that you're 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 a poor worker who has stolen from your boss, don't necessarily immediately go to, well, you know I'm a Christian. That doesn't help. If people think you're an evildoer, don't bring Christ into that. Right? Clear your name of evil doing first. Right? Vindicate me, O God, according to my righteousness. And when you're vindicated, then you can say, hey now, let's talk about slander and let's talk about my Christ. Christians, we do this. We we tend to do this. And we don't do it well. We don't do it well when we're defending ourselves in the media. We don't do it well when we're defending ourselves in front of law courts. What we attempt to do is, before uh, clearing our name of wrongdoing, we immediately begin preaching Christ. And so the culture and our accusers still see us as wrongdoers even when we're trying to defend Christ. And Paul does not do that here. Paul defends himself on the basis of his conduct, saying, I'm a devout Jew, I've kept my conduct clean, no one can accuse me, bring me proof, where are the accusers, show me where I'm wrong. If you can't do it, then let's talk about my Christ. Okay? So the world is going to accuse us as Christians of wrongful deeds. If we are caught in wrongful deeds, we must repent. Right? We must repent. If your kids point out something to you, parent, that's an occasion for repentance. It's an occasion to own when we have sinned. That's what we do. If you're in your workplace or your, your studies and people are pointing out some, of, some place in which you've slipped in how you've conducted yourself ethically, hear that and Repent. But if you know you've had a clean conscience before God and before man, don't just move right to defending Christ. Right? You can call them out for their slander. You can call them out and defend yourself. There comes an opportunity to defend Christ. And this is what we have in the second part of this chapter we have that the Spirit convicts the world as to our sinful hearts. Right, the world was convicting or accusing Christians on account of their conduct, their actions. The Spirit convicts mankind of our sinful heart. So Felix is, is actually interested, initially interested in hearing Paul speak. In Acts chapter twenty four, twenty four, it says this, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and coming judges, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. There's an initial interest in hearing Paul speak. And this is interesting. He comes with Drusilla, his wife. And perhaps this is an interest of compromise in their marriage. It's, they, these, these two have an interesting story. Felix was a Roman, and he was a worldly one of that. I mean, I've already talked about how he's caught up in these, like, fast, he's not a good guy, Felix. But Felix was actually a slave. He he, uh, was a slave in the household of the mother of Caesar. Okay? And so he, 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 in serving that household well, and maybe even serving them with shrewdness and complicity, we don't know. But in serving them, they granted his freedom. And so he becomes a freed man. And not only does he become a freed man, but through his connections to Caesar's household, he's been given this governorship. And so Felix is... Uh, a shrewd, shrewd man, but he's he's earned his his governorship through his relations to Caesar's household. He marries very, very shrewdly as a former slave. His first wife was a granddaughter of Anthony and Cleopatra. You may have heard of them. That's his first wife. Uh, when he is sick of her, he divorces her, marries a second wife, and now Drusilla, who comes appears here, is actually his. Third wife, and the way that he gets Drusilla is pretty interesting story as well. Drusilla was a Jewess, and apparently she was gorgeous. Uh, Josephus tells she's, she's just a knockout, and Felix wants her. But he's a Roman, she's a Jew. And so he, he convinces her somehow that she will, she gets, he gets a friend of hers to convince her that the only way she's really going to be happy is if she divorces her husband and marries Felix. And she does. And so she's already violated Jewish law once by divorcing her husband, twice by remarrying Felix, three times by marrying a Gentile. And, and so this is an, they're, they're an interesting couple. They've already kind of thumbed their nose up at, at all the customs of their father's. Yet, they're a mixed marriage, and I'm wondering, and I don't know this, I'm wondering if part of the reason why they're opening, open to hearing from Paul, why they come together to him as a married couple, I'm wondering if, if, if part of the reason why they're so interested to hear from Paul is maybe they've heard about the faith in Jesus, and maybe they heard a little bit about, maybe here's this sect of Judaism that was a little bit less rigid and a little bit more open to Gentile ways. You can imagine they're a mixed marriage. She's already married a Gentile. The Jewish people would have nothing to do with her because of that. And maybe they thought, well, we heard about this sect of Jesus, that the Gentiles are part of this, and, and maybe this is something for us. Maybe this is a religion where we can go and have you know, Thanksgiving dinner together as a family. Right? Because they're in this mixed marriage. And we don't know why, but we do know that they have an interest in hearing about faith in Jesus. And Paul, what he does, what they find out very quickly when they hear from the Apostle Paul, is that this is not... Christianity is not a religion that is less rigid. Christianity upholds the moral character and the moral law of God. And so here Paul speaks to the heart of Felix, the heart of Drusilla. He speaks to them about three things. He speaks to them about a righteousness he does not, they do not possess. If they were hoping for a less rigid, less permissioned religion, they'd come to the wrong place. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not permissive we just uh, did a parenting conference this last weekend and one of the things that the the speaker in the parenting conference spoke about is the difference between permissiveness and grace sometimes people think that graceful christian parenting is permissive christian parenting and he said grace is not permissive grace is only grace when it recognizes that sin and wrongdoing has occurred so the gospel of jesus christ is not a permissive gospel it's a gospel of grace. You know, the gospel calls us not only to preach the law, the moral law of God, but to preach the law further than any of the Jewish teachers ever dared to because the gospel preaches the law to the heart. Jesus said, you heard it said, do not murder. Right? But I would say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Jesus said, you heard it said, and these are familiar verses to many of us. Jesus said, you heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who lusts after a woman in his heart has committed adultery with her in your heart. So if you write, I offends you, cut it out. Jesus said, you heard it said to love your neighbors. But I tell you that the gospel calls us to a love that is genuine from the heart. I tell you, love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said that if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, no, I'm telling you, turn your other cheek and be struck again. If somebody asks you for their cloak, give them your jacket. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go two. Jesus says to them, this is not about being lax about God's moral law. In fact, he sums up his entire sermon, that section of the Sermon on the Mount, to say, be perfect, therefore, for your heavenly Father is perfect. The Jews, the, the, the revelation given to the Jews was, be holy for your Lord our God is holy. What holy means is to be set apart for a purpose. Jesus said, no, what the moral law actually teaches about God's righteousness and about our unrighteousness is that in order to stand before a perfectly holy God, we must morally be perfect, for He is perfect. And so Jesus is actually pushing the law further than any Jewish rabbi ever dared because He's pushing it to the level of the heart. We think Jesus was was, was laxing the law when he said, you know, the Jews gave you 613 commandments. They were boiled down into 10. And Jesus says, look, I'll boil them down into two. Love the Lord your God. So you say, two commandments. What's that? I can keep two commandments. Hit, it, hit me with them, Jesus. Two commandments. Sure, I'm ready for them. That doesn't sound hard. If I gave you two law, two, two rules to which to live your life by, you'd say, only two. Well, that's great. Until you hear what the two are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the prophets hinge on these two things. And so it's not that Christianity is a lax religion. What it is is that Christianity is a religion that speaks to our heart. Do you, have you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your might? And do you, have you, will you love your neighbor as yourself? Which means you do not hate, you do not murder, you do not blaspheme, you do not slander, you do not lust, you do not objectify. You do not take. Give me two laws, Jesus. And so so Paul speaks to Felix about a righteousness that he does not have. If that's the standard in front of a holy God, none of us meet and attain to that standard. It's not Paul who's on trial here, it is Felix who is on trial. So he speaks to Felix about a righteousness he does not possess. He speaks to him about a self-control that he does not practice. Because when we're confronted with our unrighteousness before a holy God, what we say is, I will try harder. I will try to do better. I will try to wash the outside of my cup better so I can be presentable in front of a holy God. How well does that go for you? Self-control in your Human flesh, self-control, can do a little. Self-control might get you to not watch Netflix that night so you can study for a test. Right? Self-control might get you so that you only have two desserts at the lunch instead of four desserts at the lunch. Self-control might get you to only eat one container of Smarties. Sorry, Marcus. <laughs> self-control in our flesh can get us a little bit far. But self-control in our flesh will not get us. It will not be able to practice what is required by the moral law of God to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And some of you know because you've tried. You've tried to be the good son. You've tried to be the good daughter. You've tried to be the perfect student. You've tried to be the perfect co-worker. You've tried to be the perfect parent. And you know that self-control only gets you so far you cannot practice because you do not possess the righteousness of God. Which leads to the third. Paul preaches to him, and he's the king. He's standing in front of Paul. It is Paul has a judgment that's going to come down from Felix. But Paul preaches to him that there's a judgment, Felix, that's going to come down to you. There's a judgment that he cannot prevent. And look at Felix's response to ah ha ha it's gone I accidentally missed it you have to look at it in your scripture Acts chapter 24 what's Felix's response to Paul's preaching it says this oh it's actually right there there it is verse 25 Felix and as he reasoned about righteousness self-control and the coming judgment Felix was alarmed and he said Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now contrast this. P- Felix has had, Felix is now on trial. Felix has now had the accusation or the conviction of the Holy Spirit against his sinful heart. He, Paul was on trial just on the basis of his actions and his deeds, because that's what the world accuses us of, of our actions and our deeds. But take heart, Christian. The world rarely will get you, to you at the level of your heart. But when we put the world on trial through the preaching of the gospel and through the power of the Spirit, we actually speak not only of the deeds, but to and directed at the heart. And so Felix here trembles in front of the Spirit of God and the Word of God being preached and proclaimed. Paul, when he's accused of his deeds, Paul gets up in front of Felix and says, look, I cheerfully make my defense in front of you, Felix. Because Paul knows he has a clear conscience. He knows that this is just a slanderous accusation. So he cheerfully, he goes in front of his friends and his coworkers and his kids and his neighbors and says, look, yes, bring it. Bring your conviction. Bring your accusation. I cheerfully will defend myself. Felix trembles. And that's what happens when the gospel and the spirit come into the life of a sinner. He trembles and he wants none of it. And when the gospel comes to you, and you might be here today, and you might be on trial even as I've been preaching. You may be on trial even this morning where you hear of the righteousness of the, that we do not possess, the self-control we can't practice, and the judgment we cannot prevent. It may be you on trial today, and there are two options for you. One would be what Felix does, which says, that's enough, Paul. Be quiet. I'll send for you when I want to send for you. To run away From that conviction that is pricking your heart. The other thing to do when that conviction comes into our life is to run to the only safe place, which is to run to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the only safe place to run. When the, when, the, when the actual conviction of God's holiness comes into your life, you can run away from God. Psalm 39, 139. Where can I go from the spirit? Where can I flee from the presence? If I go to heaven, you're there, God. If I make my dead in the depths of the earth, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. I cannot get away from you, God. The only safe place to escape God's judgment is to run To his Savior. Because in his Savior you will find a righteousness from God that you could not attain but has been granted to all who come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. We receive, when we come to to Jesus Christ, we receive what the Reformers call an alien righteousness. A righteousness, not that Jesus is an alien, but what it means is it's a righteousness that is not our own, which is granted to us. So I did not possess a righteousness. When I come to the Savior, I now am given a righteousness. When we run to the Savior, what we are given is we don't just have fleshly inspired self-control. What we have now is we are given when we run to the Savior. The Spirit of God is poured into our heart and now the fruit of the Spirit starts being expressed from the inside out and He gives us the Spirit of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of gentleness, of what's the next one? of self-control and so we begin to be able to do what we could not do before and we run to the savement and instead of a fearful expectation of the coming judgment we await with arms open with face lifted up saying Maranatha come Lord quickly the assurance of knowing that our sins are forgiven in him When when, when the when the Spirit of God comes and convicts you, and oh, I would say today for all of you who have entered into this place, if you do not know Jesus Christ, and if you have been in trial on trial today on the basis of the word that is preached and the Spirit of God in this place, I pray that you would run to the only safe place, your Savior. Paul's on trial in this chapter, but it's actually Felix. And, and there's the same outcome to both trials. It's not as if Paul preaches to Felix. I wish Felix would have received Christ, the hope of salvation, understood he was holding Paul unjustly and let him go. But look at Felix gets even more mad. Says at the same time he hoped that money, he, he, he says, Paul, stay here, I'll leave you in prison. At the same time he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him off and, and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Living your life for the gospel does not ensure that when you live your life with a clean conscience before God and before others that, that slanderous accusation won't come and, and that you won't be wrongfully and unjustly accused and dismissed. It's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is that God has allowed us to not only embrace His salvation, to not only find that safe place outside of God's wrath, that safe place in the shadow of the cross, in the resurrection of the Son of God, and His ascension into heaven, and we sit and we reign with Him on His throne, that is the safe place. The gospel not only gives us that, but that is what the gospel promises us in this life. It does not promise you ease. It does not promise you comfort. It promises you a hope and a Savior. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we, as we gather around your word today, first I pray, God, that if your Spirit has spoken to anyone here about righteousness, self-control, and judgment, I pray today that they may come and bow their knee, their heart, their lives to you as Savior and Lord. I pray that right now they would be running to that safe place of grace.